0: Welcome back for another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. Today, Ingrid and I will be taking a different look on a topic we touched on in Season 1, Nature-Based Solutions.
1: Hey, Alex. Hello, listeners. Like Alex said, we've already featured a two-part episode on Nature-Based Solutions last season. So if you haven't taken a listen yet, make sure to check out our episodes, Rivers to the Rescue, Parts 1 and 2. Today, though, we wanted to hear about the role of natural infrastructure in reducing climate-related risks. What types of interventions can help reduce flood and drought risk? How can we support the implementation of nature-based solutions, or NBS, through financial instruments and novel business models? It seems as though NBS has become an increasingly hot topic in our water and climate circles over the past few years. However, the evidence for where and when NBS are most appropriate has really been lacking. But that's starting to change as projects aimed at measuring and valuing the impact of NBS or hybrid solutions are beginning to present us with exciting preliminary data.
0: When we came up with this topic, we immediately knew that we needed to bring in Dr. Elena Lopez-Gunn. She's the director of a Spanish research organization, and more importantly to today's discussion, she is the lead for a large-scale EU project on the insurance value of nature. We'll hear about her ongoing work, some on-the-ground demos, and the ways they aim to operationalize a framework using nature to reduce risk.
1: All right, well, let's go ahead and cut to the interview, which will be followed by another unique take on climate change in today's Postcard from the Future. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us your comments and reviews and follow us on Facebook using at Climate Ready Podcast.
0: The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. An informal network for water resources adaptation to climate change, focused on supporting experts, decision makers, and institutions within the water community to find common solutions for sustainable water resources management. The podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit (laughs) www.worldbank.org.
1: So, today on the Climate Ready podcast, we have the great pleasure of chatting with Dr. Elena Lopez Gunn, who is a very active AGUA collaborator and an expert around all things green infrastructure. Elena is the director of iCatalyst, a Spanish research company based in Madrid focused on environmental issues, social innovation, and climate change adaptation and mitigation. Beyond that, Elena is also the project lead for an ongoing multi-year European Union Horizon 2020 project called Nature Insurance Value Assessment and Demonstration, or NIAD. We're really excited to have her on the show and take a dive into today's topic around ecosystem services. Thank you so much for joining us, Elena. Very glad to be here with you. To
0: get started, let's first make sure that we're all on the same page for some terminology that we'll be using throughout the episode. In last season of the show, we touched on the concept of nature-based solutions. Elena, how do you define this term, and what does it mean to you when you think of this concept?
2: I don't know if you're aware, but there's actually quite an interesting space still on defining nature-based solutions. and The definition is still not completely closed. For example, the definition of the IUCN emphasizes very much the word of action and the fact that it always has to have some kind of environmental return. Whereas, for example, in the definition of the EU, it talks about actions which are inspired, supported, or copied from nature. One of the things that was particularly relevant for our project is that we believe that in the space that that NIAR inhabits, which is very much about looking at the role of nature in disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation, quite often it's going to be about the services that nature provides, but sometimes this might actually be also going down the road of hybrid approaches and it's understanding when are these nature-based solutions effective when you're looking at them under a kind of risk framework. So I think for us, the way we're going to proceed in NIA is we're going to come up with kind of like an internal working definition where we definitely believe that action is a key element and then the main function that we're going to focus on is about uh, the kind of risk element of these nature-based solutions, and therefore all the other elements, like for example, you know, the positive impact on health, etc., would be considered co-benefits under our framework.
1: That's really great, Elena. And you really eloquently, I feel like, touched on the issue and, and demonstrated why we even asked that question in the beginning. Because absolutely, depending on who you talk to, the definition is shifting, it's changing over time. So that was really helpful, um, I think, in framing and in the way that you put it as a very kind of action-oriented definition. For our listeners, just to maybe take a step back, natural systems can provide a wide variety of services, some that fuel our industry and our economies, but also these natural systems can aid in helping us reduce uh, disaster risk, And so, in the context of the NIAID project, that's centered more around nature insurance value. So, you mentioned just there, right at the end, you you tend to put an emphasis more on the risk reduction benefits of ecosystems. Could you talk more about about what that means,
2: and then in terms of co-benefits, and what's the distinction there? I do think it matters because, for example, NAYER is is sister to another eight EU projects. Uh, They're all EU projects focused on nature-based solutions. But I think for us, the difference is that, whereas in the other EU projects, the focus is really on nature-based solutions within an ecosystem services frame, and therefore regulation, for example, the regulation of extreme events would actually be kind of one of those services. We kind of flip it. For us, we're looking at the disaster risk reduction potential of nature, where in a way, if you have good ecosystem functions we're trying to basically quantify to what extent uh, are you actually reducing your risks so for example in this context of the arab what i would argue is that uh, naiad is very much on the framework of sendai which is the international convention on disaster risk reduction which is really shifting the paradigm to towards disaster risk management and particularly prevention what naiad is really trying to consider is not so much looking at the damages that you would have, say, from a flood or a kind of slow-onset disaster, like a drought. Uh, but you're actually trying to really say, well, how would it be if I, for example, managed the catchment properly? You can then start to intervene at the landscape scale, at the territorial scale, which I think is actually one of the things that we miss. We also know that nature-based solutions are not going to be fit for all. We really have to understand when are these solutions fit for purpose, right? and and they might not be for purpose in all locations but we actually think that it increases the kind of portfolio of solutions you could contemplate when you're looking at things like climate change or global change like even urbanization or population growth
0: in this project you're not really just doing research for the sake of doing research you're trying to mainstream effective solutions going forward and often the biggest hurdle is translating the theory and the things you've learned into practice so accomplish this within NIAD, you all have set up a really interesting dynamic in terms of the the stakeholders that are involved and I wanted to touch on this for just a minute. To start, who are some of the groups and partners working on the project in terms of contributing to research and implementation?
2: Luckily for us we have 23 partners across 11 countries from the European Union. In those partners we have NGOs, we have uh, a city like Copenhagen, we have a river basin agency like the Dueto in Spain, we have a small company like us. We have two universities like King's College or OIG Delft. We also include the French reinsurers, CCR. So I think what we all share is that we all want to walk the talk. Although it is considered a research project, we're talking about applied research where we're really going to the field, to the ground, to really have real cases with real people where we really try to kind of stress this, this scientific hypothesis
0: That's a good overview on the shared vision within the core group of project partners and NIAID. But so far, we haven't really heard about this other key group of stakeholders involved. From the very outset, you all pick up this interesting dynamic by working closely with the insurance industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience?
2: You mentioned insurance. We did an insurance survey. In the end, actually extended over the first year of the project, and I think it was a decision that really changed the project at its core, you know, in a way of trying to understand where we fit in in a sector that is very established, you know, that is obviously the most experienced sector in in terms of risk. One of the key things we learned is that you, you probably have to differentiate on the one hand between the insurance sector and then within the insurance sector also on the reinsurance sector. And then the other thing that we learned is that it's a heavily regulated sector. It's very different if you're in Sweden, if you're in Germany, if you're in the UK, if you're in Spain or if you're in Romania, because the national legal frameworks are, are, are really quite different. And therefore, when we try to implement these nature-based solutions, is something that that's going to have to be taken into account.
0: It sounds like it's very much been a learning experience working with the insurance sector. And based on these interactions and the feedback they've provided, either through the survey or otherwise, has that reaffirmed or changed what you see as their role within NIAID or or even the goals of the project itself?
2: With the relationship with the insurance sector, I think we find that they're very active. And I think possibly the, the takeaway from this, the survey that we did is that it would be very simplistic to think that they have one role to play. I think they have they have different levers where I think the insurance sector could play a role. But, but equally, at the same time, we have become probably much more humble in saying, well, in fact, we cannot really talk for the insurance sector. I think they really have to speak for themselves. What... I think the role of NIAID is much more to talk about what is the role of nature in terms of its protective value when we're talking about changing climate and changing systems. That's where I think NIAID can actually contribute with the science.
1: Elena, you mentioned that the raison d'être of NIAID is looking at what is the role of, of nature, but thinking kind of more about outcomes As I understand it, one of the main objectives of the project is to operationalize or provide a decision support framework and and planning tool for helping to implement these potential nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you could give maybe one or two
2: examples of of how you guys are demonstrating this approach. I think I'll quickly take you through where where we are at the project. The first thing that we're trying to develop is, is a kind of assessment framework. When you're systematic about the way you, you approach nature-based solutions from this kind of more risk frame, this in itself has been a, a, a strong learning. We understood that first we have to start with the physical system to really understand very, very well. And I think this is where science is, and good science is absolutely fundamental, you know, because you really need to base yourself on the, on the best available knowledge, or if you don't have it, ideally try to generate it. Uh, then the other element that I think we incorporated is not to forget the social side most people often forget that ultimately these solutions are going to be implemented is because society accepts it or in a way wants it so this idea of incorporating the social risk perception of the population in the areas that we're looking at we actually have had workshops now in all of our demos to first define with them so it's this idea of co-design is very much at the, at the core of naya so we didn't come and tell them okay, your main risk is flood, your main risk is drought, your main risk is X. We actually ask them in a process where we try to incorporate most of their actors to to then define what is the risks that concern them the most. And therefore, what are the solutions that they would consider as more of a priority? And I think the difference at night on that is that in the... As I said earlier, in that portfolio of solutions, we introduce the green solutions as part of that kind of toolbox that the stakeholders are going to be considering when they're looking at their risks. And then eventually, when the project is is finished, the idea is, yes, we will generate. I think we anticipate two kind of tools. One is being developed by King's College in London. It's called an eco which is basically like an open access, uh, not cut uh, model that really is trying to estimate the potential of this natural capital. I think one of the things that is particularly interesting about this tool is that it, it, it operates at a rel- relatively large scale, right? So again, we're talking about landscape scale, but we've also learned from the first year and a half of the project that that's precisely the scale at which the fi- the, the finance uh, world operates. Quite often, one of the problems that we've already identified in NAYER is a misfit between some of the solutions. Some of the nature-based solution standards can be relatively small. How do you aggregate them? How do you scale them up? So I think the fact that initially you have this tool, which already is identifying the potential hotspots, in a way, for solid natural capital investment, I think is going to be quite interesting. And then another tool that is being developed is called the IBE platform, and it's almost like a kind of decision support making tool. The vision the project has is, is that you might be a, a city planner, or you might be a, a renovation agency, or you might be... And then you can kind of try to imagine how these solutions would actually work in your context. But at the moment, as I said, design the drawing board, you know, they're being developed as we speak.
0: I'm glad you brought up the concept of scale, because I think that's really important, because they all have different numbers and different groups of stakeholders involved, maybe different levels of bankability. And they'll ultimately tease out some different lessons that you can learn from them. So. You mentioned earlier that you're piloting and assessing this NIAID approach in nine different demo sites across Europe. You're about a year and a half into the project. You're by no means done, but 2020 is getting a little bit closer. So is there a a particular demo site where the ecosystem benefits uh, of nature-based solutions are especially apparent or obvious that you wanted to touch on?
2: In NIAID, I think what is interesting about the demos is that you have to look at it as a matrix almost with three entries. One is the scale, you're right, it's a geographical scale, so we have probably our largest demo is probably the lower temps, so that's a big scale. And then we even have Sparta Stadium in Rotterdam, which is a nano scale, it's very small. We're quite excited because in the case of Sparta, I think it was about a month ago, that nature-based solution is actually being implemented as we speak. And this is a very clever system to basically be able to store the water, the excess water, Uh, when you have extreme rainfall and then be able to be used when you have periods like they have in now in Holland (laughs) of uh, low rainfall. Uh, And then, of course, the poster child of Nayar has to be Copenhagen (laughs) because whereas um, in Sparta we're talking about one nature-based solution in one football stadium, very famous football stadium, in the case of Copenhagen, they really go the full works and we're talking probably about 140 solutions. So it's much more about a strategic plan of how do you integrate nature-based solutions with grey solutions in the context of cloud management. And they have already involved the insurance sector in a way as one of the actors in the whole funding and finance of this approach to reducing the risk to the city of Copenhagen.
0: So those are a few examples from demos. What's a quick rundown on the process of selecting and evaluating interventions? You all don't just impose a set of decisions down on the stakeholders, correct?
2: With the stakeholders, we identified they prioritize what are the nature-based solutions they want, as then go through the NIAT process, yeah, of doing the economic valuation, which eventually means that we try to design business models around these nature-based solutions, so eventually they can be self-funded. Yeah, that's the natural assurance skins. That's the, the final goal of the project, to find viable uh, solutions in every way, not just, uh, you know, but also in, in the kind of funding and, and finance. For example, we have the case of our partners in Ljubljana, where the discussion is much more to put the natural solution on the table as one of the options, because in a way, maybe in some contexts, this is still not seen as part of the portfolio, probably through lack of knowledge or inertia or or maybe lack of evidence. You know, there could be a a range of reasons. As I said, you know, in this three scale matrix, we have on the one hand, the geographical scale the other one is the level of implementation uh, and then the other third element is the risk you know so we have some demos that are, are are looking mainly at floods uh, some demos are looking mainly at droughts or water scarcity and then the role that these solutions play I- I- is very different actually and i think we need to internalize this quite quite a lot the nature of the risk is linked to the solution you're going to be to be looking for
1: yeah, I mean, it, that really kind of gets to the amazing complexity of this of this project, right? So you have so many different scales, both in terms of geographical, temporal scales, different government levels of government and those sorts of things that, that you're working with across the EU. And I get that, I don't know, the outcomes or the results for each case is going to be very tailored. But are there any outcomes that can be more... I guess, generally applicable on a global scale, or is
2: the outcome just that it depends? (laughs) I think one of the things that is very important is also not to oversell. I think one of the real challenges for us is to really demonstrate when these solutions really do work, you know, and they really can help, but also say when, no, here I really wouldn't go down this road unless you complement it with this and this and this. Because otherwise, I think we would be shooting ourselves in the foot, and then you would lose a lot of reputation. So I think, sadly, the answer is, yes, it depends. But I think the dream that we have is that even if it does depend, that we can find some kind of general lessons that are applicable uh, to different places and different locations. The idea is that these are test cases to have a deeper understanding of what really are ultimately systems. So then we do have to tailor them to the specific location, but we're still talking about systems. So the deeper our knowledge on how the systems work, the more likely we are that we will be able to then be able to come up with similar schemes or that are based on a similar approach, but that are fit for purpose for particular location. but at the same time you know the more we know about okay how do cities how how do nature based solutions generally how could they help cities in general to cope with say uh, heat waves or drought or how could they help with sea level rise i think we will be looking at solutions and it's not just nature this is this is my point that nature is part of the solution i strongly believe so and i hope that with the project we can demonstrate uh, but also we need to be conscious that they need to be complemented with other elements and it's knowing when will they work when will they working you know together with something else and when will they really not work this is a space where our knowledge is still very low and that's why i think projects like naya hopefully can help because i think the gap is so big that the more people that work on this the, the better because the faster we will get to have a better knowledge so we actually know how to implement these solutions or when to implement these solutions
0: So as we're looking forward still in a perfect world, when when NIAID is all wrapped up a couple of years from now, what kind of changes might we see and what kind of changes would you like to see maybe in terms of, for example, the way that insurers operate or or any other types of uh, long-term benefits you might see?
2: So for me, one is the impact on the science. Of course, we need to have much better knowledge and evidence, as you said, grounded on the best scientific knowledge on these nature-based solutions. I think the other impact that we're starting to really see is on the level of policy. For example, we're trying to now engage with the discussions around the role of green infrastructure, which is very much part of Sendai, the paradigm shift towards prevention. We're riding that wave. So to be part of that discussion and that global discussion at the moment on changing the paradigm towards prevention is very important. I think Naya should be very much part of the discussion. And then the third one, which to me is very much, I think, in the heart of all of us, is to see it happen <laughs> in reality, not not just, you know, okay, the science is great, we need it. I'm, you know, I am a scientist myself. Um, the policy, yes, of course, you know, we need to influence policy processes, but we also need to show that it works or when it doesn't work. The fact that we've done nine is by no ways enough. We will need to kind of have some institutions that somehow vouch for going for this this approach. And I think to me, it's shifting the thinking a bit. And I think, I, I do think it is happening. So I think to us, I would hope that at the end of Nayar, I don't need to have another three-year research project. I would actually be able to go to someone in the region of Madrid or someone in my country and say, look, why don't you invest in flood restoration? It's very effective. Go for it. You know, so they, they do actually think of this nature-based solution as very much part of the way they're going to face climate change. So to me, I would expect that in three years' time I have enough evidence or simulated evidence, uh, robust enough, that then they're willing to, to invest in nature.
1: That's like super important, just what you said right there at the end, is we're talking about shifting that paradigm uh, response to prevention. At this point, I think it's like 90% of, of funding for disaster risk reduction goes toward response. And yeah. there's, there's hardly any funding right now, you know, going towards preventative measures, which over the long run, we know would be a lot more cost-effective, you know, save lives, save infrastructure, save nature. And so having an evidence base, you know, and collecting this these examples of how we can actually implement preventative measures that are going to work over the long term, I think will really help in terms of working on the funding yeah
0: and i think it's a really opportune time for NIAD too i think that there's a lot more kind of inertia and and momentum and and with that credibility behind these nature-based solutions uh, and these types of approaches you know world water day this past year was all about nature-based solutions and the theme for this year's world water week in stockholm is water ecosystems and human development so I think that NIAID will hopefully be in a very good place at its conclusion, and there will be enough momentum to take the results and keep them going in perpetuity. (laughs) I think that's all the questions we had prepared. We really appreciate the time, Elena.
2: You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
1: We hope you all really enjoyed our in-depth conversation with Elena. I know speaking for myself, I feel like this could have been one of those two-hour interviews. I had about 30 more questions I would have loved to ask her because I'm so inspired um, by all the really interesting work that she's doing. And it was great to get an opportunity to hear about a new topic within the arena of nature-based solutions. We hear more and more about the potential and realized values of green or hybrid infrastructure, and yet we're still learning a ton as we explore and research the complexities of nature-based solutions.
0: Elena mentioned that the EU has put a high priority on research in this area, where NIAD is only one of nine or so EU-funded projects on nature-based solutions. In particular, I think there is a justifiably strong interest in looking at the risk reduction abilities of ecosystems. That's something that you can't help but think about as we turn on the news each day to hear about a new flood or hurricane or typhoon her research is working to find a quantifiable framework for implementing some sort of risk buffering or mitigating interventions not to mention the adaptation components
1: oh absolutely but it may be equally important to remember that nature-based solutions are not a silver bullet they're certainly not appropriate in every situation and they can't by themselves solve all of our problems What NIAID hopes to do is provide the scientific evidence necessary to bring these options to the broader conversation about risk reduction, potentially leading to more investment in green and hybrid infrastructure down the road. We'll see how all this plays out with the large number of stakeholders involved, not the least of which being the insurance sector, which I think could be an interesting topic for a future Climate Ready podcast episode. Regardless of the short-term outlook, however, I'm always encouraged to hear about innovative projects like NIAID, as we prepare for a future full of more risk and more uncertainty.
0: As we wrap up this episode, we want to hear a little bit more about that very future you mentioned. For that, we'll turn to a brief postcard from the future, courtesy of Al Megji. Al is currently an MPA candidate in Science, Technology, and Infrastructure at Cornell University, having previously worked for the FAO in Engineers Without Borders. Let's hear his take on the future and some advice about paving the best path forward. Dear
3: friends, the year is 2017 and 82 years of age. I feel like I'm 25 with the new technology. I'm writing this in my flood-protected house, although at this stage the floods have become the norm, as opposed to one-off events they were back in 2018. Droughts are pretty bad too, and the food system is straining. But I have a good income and live in an advanced economy, which means that I am okay. Population control started in the UK and in most global north countries around 2055, something that's still trying to be placed into the developing world with no luck. The water systems in the world have wreaked havoc, with the intensity and location of rainfall events changing with no sign of settling down. My water is coming from a huge transfer scheme up north that I worked on for a decade or so. Speaking of which, the pension age recently went up to 90. Storms and typhoons like Sandy, Maria and Mankut happen pretty regularly, and the news doesn't know which stories to cover sometimes because there are so many. Governments are clinging on, claiming to be useful and relevant, but really most things are provided by private companies now. They hire families across generations. Three of my great-grandchildren, who've just turned four, five, and eight, already have contracts to work in these places. Migrant policies are very strict and harsh. Sometimes it's hard to watch the news. We really failed multiple generations across multiple geographies. China's One Belt, One Road initiative was finished and used for trade for a short while, but now it's used as a global water transfer system, given the impermeable surface and constant flooding occurring along its length. African countries banded together and became one federated country which looks promising moving forwards. The euro is on its second try after suffering multiple setbacks with countries going bankrupt. I have to admit a lot of the news goes over my head. We almost fixed the global food issues by intensifying agriculture in Africa and going for precision agriculture in other parts of the world but transboundary resource issues and bickering delayed things to the point where climate change caught up with us, destroyed the soils, and ruined the infrastructure in place to harvest the crops. And because no one was in rural areas anymore, we all live in high-density cities now. It took a long time to get things up and running again. The usual human issues have endured. Wars, migration, the idea of something over there not impacting what happens over here. But there are glimmers of hope here and there, much like it was in 2018. And 2028. And 2050 now I think of it. Anyway, on to the advice. You're all capable friends. You have many skills in different areas. Media, transport, marketing, engineering. The list goes on. But in 2018, if I remember correctly, you were all working in large cities of the world with projects mainly in the global north. My advice to you would be to shift your focus to Africa and Asia. We were so close to doing great things, but we just lost momentum and couldn't get over some of the hurdles in place. You guys are key. You, your friends, your colleagues are key to fixing the issue. And I send this to you in the knowledge that your breadth of experience is what is needed. Financing, infrastructure, marketing, behavioural sciences, cooperation, flexibility. This is what is needed and it was needed around the start of the 21st century. From where I sit now, it looks like we backloaded the work. And to be honest, it wasn't intentional. We just took a route that was filled with paralysis through indecision. If only we had stopped duplicating work across organisations and focused on the contextual issues. As long as what you do is appropriate and possible, and then you build in the flexibility for future events around that. We had all the info and tech back in 2018. Just the willpower failed us. Maybe it's part of the human condition. In summary, it's a mixed bag. Winners and losers, as always. Lottery numbers for the last week of August 2019 are 21, 12, 45, 34, 8, and 22. Goodbye from the future.
1: That's it for this episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. Thanks again to our earlier guest, Dr. Elena Lopez-Gunn, and to our friend Al Megji for sharing his postcard from the future. Until next time, everyone.
0: The Climate Ready podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Tembo.